0: Welcome to The Combinatorial Bomb, a series of podcasts on the complexity of systems integration projects. I'm Larry Lauden, I've been in software for over 25 years and been on hugely successful projects, as well as projects that should never have been started in the first place or that ended up in a ditch or on fire. In this first episode, entitled The Overheads of Scale, I'll be talking to James Barker, a good friend and colleague, and who is himself a battle-hardened veteran of massive SI projects. So, so the two of us have worked together for a long time. We've been on lots of big, hairy projects. Um, so James, yeah, SI projects versus a standard software project. Yeah, okay. All right. How do you characterise the difference between a big SI project
1: and a, and a typical software project. Big SI project probably has, well in my experience, mul- it's a multi-vendor environment. So you'll have um, typically your teams, your delivery team like an Accenture or a PwC. And I've, used, I've worked with Accenture, Tata, Patney, Infosys, IBM, the full amount then the software vendors. So um, we worked with Tibco Professional Services, um, Cordiant, which is now Pega, um, Single View Billing, Billing and Rating System, um, and the big, the big scary projects are when all those guys are in together, and you, you try, and they've all got their different architectures, and you're trying to pull it all together into some kind of coherent solution typically tends to have a $50 million price tag as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. these are not cheap things, right? And yeah. the problem, yeah, well, one of the problems you definitely see is um, this, this thing where you've got um, a combination of the number of vendors, the number of systems, number of APIs, the number of permutations of the journey, all of these things, yeah. Um, the the that the scale factors of complexity add up. Well, if so don't add up; they multiply. So what happens is, you know, having two vendors. When you add a third vendor, it doesn't make it fifty percent harder. It makes it significantly, you know, harder. And if you've got like four vendors, it makes it way, way worse. And the, the worst thing is the just the incredible amounts of wastage,
1: yeah. wastage of time, wastage of paper. Uh, wastage wastage of energy just going over the same things over and over and over With again, all
0: the different yeah. teams, yeah, yeah, and trying to just get it all together, and those factors of complexity, as they multiply up, you end up getting this combinatorial bomb of complexity where um, it becomes exponentially harder to do things, the more of these. Yeah. Teams and the more of the systems and things like that that you
1: add, and weirdly, you, you see teams getting generated and created from the from the problem. Yeah. So, for example, when you're trying to, we were trying to integrate all these applications that had their own data model, we then ended up creating the canonical data model team that would that would bring it all together and transform it and make sure it all mapped. And that was a big team. It was like twenty people. It like,
0: <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. 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 So all, all of these things just add up. So let's also talk to me a little bit about, um, let's talk about SI versus ADAM providers. So they're a little bit different, aren't they, right? You can go to quite small companies and get small bits of development done, right? But what would you say is the difference between an SI versus a, a typical small software provider?
1: A small software provider will be a lot more agile, and their guys will be experts in the system, right? They will get the job done. SIs will tend to bring a load of heavyweight, uh, expensive resources in who say they know what they, they can do, and actually they're not really that good at it. Right. So you'll, you'll pay top dollar, and you'll go quite. It'll be quite slow. Yeah. Um, and you don't get the best out of the technology either. Yeah. So they all say the platinum partners, but they're not really. Yeah. They, they don't know. They don't know the ins and outs of the technology that well. Um, they just—they just really there to provide what they call good governance and bodies.
0: Yeah. So, so you're a CIO, CTO, right? And you're faced with this big, complex project, right? You've, you've got to do this this major piece of work. Like you say, it's a, it's a massive piece of work right? involving lots of different systems, lots of different technologies, um, and you've only got limited resources in your team, right? So. So you decide to engage an SI rather than scaling up your own team and things like that. So what does say, what does it look like when you engage a big SI? Just give us a little bit of a, a, little a sense of what it feels like to be part of a team when a big SI kind of comes in. But everything slows
1: down very quickly for a start because they want to put in all of the governance boards and... Um, this, that and the other design authorities They spend weeks just coming up with the PowerPoint stuff right? Of who's going to sit on what boards What's on the stakeholder maps All that kind of stuff So you've wasted a couple of months straight away right? Just not getting to the point And then the next one is spending months Defining the entire scope for the whole thing That's going to take two years to deliver So most probably by the time you get through the first six months uh, The stuff's already irrelevant So, there's no real concept of minimal viable product or anything like that. It's like document everything first, design everything up first, and then you might talk about the
0: scope. Yeah, Yeah, it's bigger than that. So, So, so why why do people even do it, right? Why why do people get SIs in? Fear factor, I think. Uh, Often,
1: CIOs don't know how to tackle the problem. So that they go to someone who they can... There's this term, one throat to choke.
0: Oh, right? uh, yeah, yeah, I remember so, that
1: one, yeah. So you, you get some suit in that you can bash over the head every time something goes wrong and he just takes it for the team. Yeah. Um, that's a lot easier to do than with your own people.
0: That is, yeah. yeah. And, and to be fair, on the big SI's, um, which will occasionally be, um, they do often stand by their brand in terms of, if it all goes horribly wrong, they do cough up. Yeah. Right? Um,
1: sort of. You, sort of, you pay yeah, you, it's, like, it's like insurance though, you, you've, you've paid for that, they've, they've, really they've, they've, they've baked in the failure into the, into the cost.
0: Yeah, right yeah. and it hasn't also recovered for you the lost business opportunity, no. or any of these sorts of things. So it's not what you want, but as you say, it's something where you're unlikely to get fired yeah. by engaging a big SI even yeah. if it goes horribly wrong because you're like well you know they're a big SI they gave us our money back etc or they give us some of our money back so it's a safer option than um, kind of ramping up your own team however
1: I don't, I don't know the statistics but um, I bet a quarter of these big projects failed
0: oh, there was definitely a time when for big enterprise projects it wasn't that long ago where it was way over half really of any, and the bigger the project the less likely it was to succeed yeah right that, and I think that still probably holds true yeah right the more people you involve um, the greater the likelihood that the project is going to collapse literally under its own weight yeah as you add all these teams and things like yeah. this Um so actually one of the things that is interesting as well is this the, the gonculator so this this varies um from si to si but really every si has got a way of estimating the number of people and the cost of a project and what yeah. they do is they take all these complexity factors so they'll look at number of apis the complexity of the API, of the apis uh, number of screens a number of systems involved all of these things that add up to the combinatorial bomb of complexity and they will put all of these things into a spreadsheet or some kind of tool um, and you know the gonculate, and then they will pull the big lever yeah. Ping, and yeah. that will spit a number and the number is the cost of the project and then what they do and this is the bizarre thing is they reverse engineer the team size to the cost of the project yeah so I'll spell this big number and they go right this means we need 80 developers and 40 testers and you know and they'll shape it like that not really coming at it from a first principles how should it look it's here's all the things here's what the tool says yeah and this is part of um they're very precious about it as well. Oh yeah, super. This is, this is
1: like super secret IP. I've got yeah. I've got a view of it a couple of times because you get to know people and they show you it, but they're like can't show this to anybody type thing. It's like, they you know it's their crown jewels because it stands the whole company up and they use they can say oh it's all based on actuals.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but based on actuals of a really high right. a fat team, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, they're very risk averse. Yeah, they're super risk averse. Right, so they'll definitely throw bodies at things. Um, as well
1: it even generates things like the number of PMO analysts you need well that's generated by because you've got so many people on the ground so yeah. it kind of like puts fat on the plant too yeah. which is odd
0: and it doesn't distinguish between things like say for example you've got um, some complexity but it's non-functional complexity they'll add a whole load of testers for it even if it can't be tested yeah, it just because t- it can't it can't distinguish between things that can and can't be tested. Yeah, it just tends to be
1: like a percentage factor. So yeah. if you, like ten percent, so if if your project was a million pounds to build, I'd say right, that's a hundred thousand pounds on top to do non-functional testing. It's like yeah, that's quite a tax.
0: It is. It's quite a tax. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so you've really given us a couple of examples, but what's, what are the, some of the other problems caused by just having large teams?
1: Uh, well a lot of, the more people you have the more they rely on things like documentation and so on some of the programs I've worked on you end up with stacks and stacks of design documents but it tends to be design documents for the different vendors and then you have to have design documents that um, join the vendors together um, you, you end up in lots of workshops, lots of repetitive um, conversations across the vendors. We end up with big war rooms. So we used to have like a, an hour and a half every morning for about six months of what was officially called the delivery war room, which t- to me just sends totally the wrong kind of uh, sets the wrong tone for the whole of the programme. Um, Yeah, you end up spending more time uh, talking than doing because it's just this sheer amount of dependencies that you have to manage Yeah, technical dependencies but people dependencies yeah I
0: think the people side of it is the hardest because as the team gets larger um, there's always going to be people who are away there's always going to be people who can't make it things like that and so You either have to be able to make decisions without those people, and then what happens is, if those people come back and they're key stakeholders or they've got a key part to play, you may end up unwinding a load of work. So in order to avoid that, people double up on resources, which makes things even worse. Um, yeah we communicate sh- the sheer amount of communication the effort involved in communication just goes up and up and up. Yeah. the more people you have involved.
1: do you remember there was one there was a floor on the top of a building somewhere I think it was in Chiswick or something that was just designated to design sign-off, design review. We'd have like 30 people sat in a room where a, an architect would be walking them through a blueprint. It would take literally days to go, like four days to go through it and get all the comments and everything.
0: Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also the more people you have involved, the more opinions you've got, just the harder it is to make decisions. Oh, there used to be
1: huge amounts of arguments. Yeah, who, about who should where that piece of development should be. So there'd always be like uh, vendor fighting for the work. So it'd be better to do this in the billing system. No, it'd be better to do this in Tibco. It'd be better to do this in Cordiant because they'd want to grab the dollars, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It definitely makes it really tricky. So, and this is also made worse sometimes by the contract itself. So sometimes what happens, and, and I've I've seen this, is where. Um, the contract is signed and, every, and you know, everyone's really cross about the cost, right? So the client is cross about the cost of this thing, or they're trying to keep the cost under control. And so they say to the vendors, right, this is your deadline or the SI. you've got to have it in by this day. And that seems like a really good idea um, on the face of it. But the problem is, it, it can be, if that timeline is too aggressive. Um, you end up with a solution where everyone's cut every possible corner to get it live, yeah. and that's what they're being measured on. And being measured on, did you get it live in time? They're not being measured on the maintainability of the solution um, and things like that. And then you end up with this freaking, you know, crammed-in solution that as soon as you try to try to touch it or change it, costs a huge amount of money, and everyone's even more cross at that point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, fixed-price programs are a nightmare. Because one, yeah, quality suffers, but two, yeah, spend more time in change request boards.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So what other factors then can can make, you know, these types of projects worse in your experience? I mean, one of them that I, I know is... You do this project, you bring an SI in. The SI does a ton of the work. What they do to start with is they land on the ground, and like you say, they they put all this structure in place, and then they spend a good while just sucking knowledge out of the various in-house teams who actually know what the back-end systems of record do and stuff like that. So all the people on the ground are like, what the heck's going on here, right? I could be doing this and be doing it a lot quicker, etc., and then when the project's done and something's been built often in a new technology, the SI you know wants to they want to get onto their next big gig yeah. um, and you're left with this thing that was bolted together pretty quickly in technology that a lot of the people who are already there don 't understand um, and you 've got to suddenly absorb that back into your company so, so now you 've got to do a KT exercise the other way. Mm back from the SI and what that usually means is because it's new tech and stuff like that and you haven't necessarily skilled up your own people you end up up transferring it to a cheaper SI just to do the maintenance of it or maybe the same SI but a different team within the SI and that's actually quite an interesting one as well because most SIs it's not the same people who do the big projects and who stick around afterwards is it?
1: No, no, you tend to have like the A team who come in like all the guys wearing the suits and stuff, and the UK-based people do do all the kind like, of the fancy yeah, stuff. Yeah, the local
0: people. Yeah.
1: yeah, and then they just uh, drop in, drop it onto the the B team, who tend to be yeah
0: somewhere somewhere,
1: somewhere around the world that you'll never see again. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And then um, so let's summarise some of the issues then. And so. it's all
1: code, right? That's the other thing.
0: Oh
1: yeah, yeah. So it's all. Uh, None of this has been written in a particularly... Efficient or elegant way, it's like just get the code done as quickly as possible. There's no like select the gonculator that said I need you know 80 Java developers, they just like hoovered up as many Java developers who are available, whether they're good or not, and they just go off and write code not to any particular standard or anything. Yeah, standards aren't probab- are probably ignored or not even in the contract. Yeah, I we saw s- some like evil bits of code before, we did.
0: I actually saw. And uh, the competition for this is pretty fierce, but the worst piece of code in the world ever. I won't, I won't shame the particular vendor who did it, but um, just because it is quite funny, um, there was a line of code that was um, effectively getting a piece of data, converting it to lowercase, um, comparing it to a number, and then getting the another piece of um, data... So, getting the same piece of data again, converting it to a a lowercase again, comparing it to a different number, getting the same piece of data again, converting it to lowercase again, (laughs) comparing it to a different number, 120 times on the same line. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's criminal, really. It
0: it was crazy. Yeah. Really, really crazy.
1: Um, So, so, you know, it's almost billing by lines of code.
0: Yeah, well, for a while people thought that sort of slocks, if you remember, source lines of code are yeah. actually quite a good yeah. measure of productivity. <laughs> um, yeah. And it just shows you have to be super careful what you measure. Right. Yeah. Super careful. So, really, then, the, you know, the problems of scale, because this is, this is the thing we we're wanting to focus on today a little bit, is the, the problem of scale is scale brings its own problem. Right. The bigger the team, the less. The likelihood it, of successes. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think it has to scale. No, no, exactly, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. yeah. People so, think people
1: think it's it's a it's a body problem, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not.
0: No, this is the whole mythical man month, yeah. right? Oh, we've got this thing. If we if we throw more bodies at it, we can get it done more quickly. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's, it doesn't take long actually for it to start being completely counterproductive. Yeah. Um, so um, so yes, yeah, so scale brings its own problem because. The communication problems become way harder. Yeah. The coordination problems become way harder. Um, I mean, if you're trying to test something and it goes across multiple systems, you've got loads of different teams involved, just the sheer act, and, the, and this is a thing that's particular to SI projects especially, is every system along the way, if it's a different team involved in owning that system, they have to set up the test data for that system for that particular test case Yeah. and then they all have to be involved yeah. in every test run because if something goes wrong, yeah. there's a chain of systems involved and you need people to be able to say, yeah, something's wrong in this system.
1: Uh, and then the uptime to... of
0: each of those yeah. is a complete nightmare.
1: Yeah, I remember things like um, build, building building contract interface contracts where one vendor would stub out one side, and the other vendor would stub out the other side. And when they took it, when they took away the stubs, the thing would never join together because some assumptions were made, and someone had deviated from it. Um, and you just spend your time having to debug that. Oh, that says that's spelt Mister on that side, but on the other side it's Mr. Oh, that's a bug. Right, got to go and change that now. Change it in the data model. Everything it used to take forever. Yeah, yeah. Just but it was like every. It was every day. We used to like have a good. We used to leave like high fiving if we'd like worked fourteen hours and we got an API working. Yeah. It's just like <laughs> used to work all
0: night and stuff. It was it was insane. Well, I can remember the same thing. Yeah, Best Buy when we are trying to do online activations, and the, we had like only three or four different teams involved. Yeah. But in the end, we had to get all the teams together. And the problem is, when you've got these big projects, is there's time zone problems as well. Yeah, Because you end up with some teams who are based in India, some might be in the US, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So your window of opportunity for working in normal hours is almost nothing. Yeah. So everybody's working slightly out of hours in order to try and yeah. make this thing work. And then you have to try and get this, this, um, this test case through. So I can remember having to get these big rooms. And what we did in the end is we had to wheel in loads of TVs. And then we had all the different people in. So we could actually trace yeah. the, the order going all the way through. But it took us a few months to work out. That the progress was so slow you have to do something drastic like that in order to actually
1: make yeah. it happen yeah I remember we did something similar on COBOL we called it dev to dev testing where we actually get, had, had a vendor tester sat with another vendor tester and said you've just got a pair program together It's to, like smash them together like that
0: yeah so anyway so, so the problem is here oh if you've got like these huge teams um, you know the the communication the collaboration is a problem the technology often is a problem because you're trying to glue technologies together that you know typically haven't been um, and then each of these big SI vendors because these projects are big and hairy and pe- they only get called in because people feel there is no alternative the price on these is crazy and the other problem with, with these massive teams is if you do run into a problem the burn rate on the programs is insane yeah so I mean Cobra was what 60 million I think so yeah. I thought it was even more I think, I think the more. first
1: release was definitely 60 million I, I think I left after that
0: <laughs> so so but when you've got a 60 million pound this is project yeah. you're burning something like what half a million no not half um, half probably half a million pounds a week yeah it was,
1: it, it was like the 100 it, grand a day it was like the I think it was like The Death Star At Carphone Warehouse Because all of the projects Got cancelled And it just was sucking in All the capex Yeah All the change You couldn't do any change Any data centre changes Because there was Big releases coming out It basically Blocked everything
0: Yeah And if And if there are Let's imagine You've got a burn rate Of 100 grand a day um, And you find a problem And everything has to Slow down for a bit You know Your burn rate is crazy Yeah and then there's the, you know, how do we actually try and recover this thing and the replanning that happens as well. Yeah. If you've done the waterfall approach, the cost of replanning is insane. So said, there the, PMO, the PMO, what was the size of the PMO? So I was about 10, 10,
1: 10 people in the PMO. Yeah. I'm not sure what. They, they just pushed documents It was just document updates. So it was like a document tracker. So yeah. if, if, if something had to be changed, you had to go and change all these documents. And it was like, that had to happen. That was the governance that was put in place.
0: Yeah, and, and this isn't. About, and all these things we're talking about here. This is not unique, right? This is not because we suck at doing SI projects. I mean, as we've been around the world talking to different companies, most of these. You know, the, the good thing was that project actually went live. Right? the project went live. It was all you know, all worked, etc. Probably half or more of these projects don't even go live. So I've been around the world talking to lots of different yeah. companies, and there are plenty of examples of projects that have cost hundreds of millions that have been canned yeah. or still aren't live yet. That yeah. are burning. You know, there was
1: um, no no concepts though of, of of fail fast though. It was always no. like it's got to be documented before you can write the code. Whereas if you had a tool, you could just like quickly prototype something, and go that works. Then half of yeah. all that stuff goes, right?
0: Yeah. and um, so, so actually, we should talk about some of the lessons we've taken from these big SI projects because uh, I'm built into, into DXP. So this is what we've done with, with the platform is, um, you know, really this is, you know, the, the, the whole raison d'etre for the platform is these big hairy SI projects shouldn't need to be like that right they yeah. should be able to be done differently Yeah. Um, and so what are some of the things that you would say we've taken as lessons from the scale point of view of these projects and baked into the platform well one for, for data
1: model is definitely one um, I remember oh, SOA is going to solve everything right yeah. it, what we'll do is we'll get the middleware sorted we'll get a good, good canonical data model everything will be great but actually that was the worst bit that was the the biggest bottleneck in the whole program. Yeah. If one of those things changes, everything else had to change. Yeah. So we stripped that out for a starter. That's so, a good thing.
0: So I'd also say the microservices don't necessarily make things better. Microservices to me feel like the new panacea. Yeah. But actually, it doesn't really help you when you've got lots of different channels, yeah. things like that. Um, but anyway, we'll come on to that probably in a different okay. podcast. But yeah, you're right. That so that was one. That was yeah. one
1: big one. Uh, this this might sound basic, but the visualisation of the journey. So, you know, in Beekeeper, we can see all of the steps and how they interrelate. Yeah, yeah. There was a guy, a great guy. Oh, I remember, yeah. Um,
0: he did these uh, awesome diagrams. We
1: had like um, a wall size. I don't even know what, what size paper it is, but imagine it's a wall. It was so, the sort of thing you used to wrap buildings in. Yeah. <laughs> there was a tube map, and it looked just like the London Underground. It was an amazing piece of graphics. There was just the customer journeys going through all of the different systems and which vendor used what and all that kind of stuff. Um, it took him and, and months,
0: did it? Months
1: it was his be. job it was, to yeah. own that. So that's a one-person job to just own the the, the visualisation of the customer journey. So that's a good thing. You know, yeah. We've got into the tool now. Um, obviously, I've talked about the yeah the... The, the, the painting, the mappings and the transforms and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think
0: it's one tool, yeah. isn't it? I think this yeah. is one of the key things. You said the problem you've got if you've got all of these different teams is the communication. So actually, and the reason you need the different teams is because they have technologies that do a specific thing. Yeah. Even if it's best in class, yeah. the problem is having lots of best in class solutions, the gluing together outweighs the benefit of having yeah. all these best-in-class things. Yeah. So what we wanted to do is have one tool so that a team could do everything end-to-end themselves and be self-sufficient. So they could build everything from, you know, configure how the UI would look, to the back-end integration, to the data, to the business logic, all of these sorts of things. Yeah. And that means that a small team can now do tons. And then we wanted a way to scale it, so that was the other thing, wasn't it? With the um, We wanted it to be more collaborative. because. Talk to us a little bit about um, the merge process. Well, well, I mean, it's typical of I mean, standard, t- right? Typical this is not, standard software, this is, right? Yeah, this is you'd, not. You'd have all the. Yeah. And there was,
1: I, I, I think there's about 200 developers working on this project, all, the different, all across the different vendors. And um, <clears throat> when we come close to a, what we used to call drops that would go into a QA cycle, There'd be a guy from each vendor, so another permanently employed person called the build manager, who would just bring in all of all of the commits and pull it into a into a release, and it it used to add about thirty percent extra onto the time of a drop, just to like resolve all these merge conflicts and stuff of stuff that might have happened like three weeks ago so you got to chop back to joe over there and say something wrong with your code and then dave over there something wrong with your code and jill there's something wrong with your code so it's like a cottage industry of code management right yeah. so i think when we set out with beekeeper we wanted to create the kind of google docs thing where it would be like you'd know straight away if someone's busted something
0: yeah Exactly, yeah. so that's the collaborative thing where yeah. lots of different teams be working on the same software, nobody's checking stuff in, yeah. as it were. But, but yeah, like but
1: just, look, just a, a man's job, build manager, you can always see him wearing like a crash helmet. It's like they're uh, going <laughs> back to the gonculator, so it's another body.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so basically the, the more complex it is, the more bodies you throw in there, <laughs> the worse it actually gets. Um, all right, brilliant. So... Quick summary, then. I can think of another one. Oh yeah, gone.
1: DevOps has come a long way in the oh, years, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But there was a dedicated there was a team called the Crin team, change oh, release know, yeah. incident management or something. But They would be the guys that would be building environments from scratch, building servers. Um, that was a team of about fifteen people. Uh, expensive people as well. Uh, back, you know, I mean, DevOps has always been expensive, but everything was manual. Yeah, everything was manual. Everything was on IBM P series, yeah. like expensive servers. So one of the things we've done is make sure all the environment provisioning is now automated, low cost, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and also just back to your point, if you have lots of best-in-class technologies, it's often hard to get the people yeah to do those things. Um, and so, you've got really expensive resources yeah. if you're going down this best in breed route. Yeah. And what we wanted to do is have something that was so simple to use that people who have a good technical head on them should be able to use it without months or years of training and background in it. Yeah. And that means that. Um, resources or people can multi, you know, they can play multiple roles on a project very easily you don't need to bring in these super high, highly expensive skill set people so I mean, and those skill sets they vary over time, so at the time I can remember TIBCO was one of the really hot technologies and in fact this is, this is one of the reasons actually why we made everything one tool was the, the TIBCO problem, so TIBCO as an enterprise kind of service bus But it's got different bits to it, so there was a bit called Business Works, um, which was the actual kind of core message bus. Um, Then there was a thing called Business Events, which was the business logic. So if you wanted to write business logic as part of a integration, um, you wrote it in Business Events. That was a different skill set and a different team from the Business Works team. And then if something needed to be long running, you needed the IProcess module and the i process team. So if you had an integration that had had those those characteristics, had some business logic and it had a little bit of long runningness to it, you'd need three different teams from the same vendor. And even getting the most basic stuff to work across all of those teams was just a nightmare. And so this is part of the reason we said well, we have to have one tool. Um, and so what what the tool does is it we try to absorb all the different types of things you would need in a project and allow you to do it all in one place without having to know any syntax um, and things like that and that's why um, that, that, that's why um, the tool is so good at doing these end to end projects is because you don't need to know all these different skill sets to do it, one person can literally do everything very easily um, okay yeah Alright, brilliant, thanks James All right. That was, that was yeah, fun actually, it's quite cathartic yeah, yeah. Getting some of that stuff out I feel better now yeah, yeah. Um, But for those of you who've never been involved in a big SI project um, Don't do them Don't, don't <laughs> do, Yeah, if you ever want to do one Do it just for the experience And just for the, you know, you'll get good um, I suppose career calluses For doing it yeah, I'd hair then. Yeah I think I lost my hair on that project. <laughs> it, it was pretty mental, wasn't it? Anyway, yeah, so if you like working all night, um, getting super frustrated, not making a lot of progress, um, and after two years, maybe it gets cancelled, have, have a go at a big SI project. Um, um, but anyway, um, but that's the reason why, one of the reasons why we built uh, what we built. is just that scale factor, right? Scale is bad. So If you can do it with a small number of people, you are way, way, way better off. All right. Cheers, James. Thanks.